Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, hi there. Welcome to Loving Liberty. Glad you could join us today. Welcome to Monday. It's the last Monday of March. <laughs> you think April's going to be any better than, uh, than March was? Talk about a month full of surprises. And, of course, if you were following the news last night, you probably noticed that uh, President Trump announced that the, uh, what would we call this, the, the directives, the, the recommendations of, uh, you know, uh, don't go out, socially distance yourself from others, you know, do everything you can to prevent the spread of coronavirus has been extended to April 30th. So we've got, uh, we've got another full month ahead of us in which uh, we're going to see some pretty extraordinary things taking place. And there are a couple of things here that are, that are really starting to uh, disturb me. And you'll probably say, well, of course, Brian, you know, you're a hardcore, radical, uh, you know, freedom guy who can't seem to, to get it through your head that people are dying, man. No, no, I get that. And I get the economy is crashing as well. Here's the thing I don't understand. And that is, how is it that this pandemic crisis so easily brings out the, the inner tyrant in some people? Let me give you an example of this. My friend Connor Boyack, he's the president of Libertas Institute, um, in response to a number of official directives being handed down through uh, various uh, county and and city governments that uh, take the government's rec- the, the governor's recommendations here in our home state of Utah, which are, look, limit your distance from people, wash your hands, don't go out unless you have to, that kind of stuff. Stay away from uh, gathering places, playgrounds, bowling alleys, theaters. You get the picture. Well, th- there are, of course, most most politicians at some level, when they get a taste of authority, really start to buy into the idea that, hey, you people can't do it without me. And clearly, there are some people within uh, Salt Lake County, I'm looking at your mayor, uh, you know, who've gotten their first taste of authority, and they like it. And so they have decided, I'm going to one-up the governor, and I'm not going to make these recommendations. Why, these are commandments. They are punishable. They are, you know, they're, they're flexing that authority for us. So Connor went to the local playground in our neighborhood and just he took a selfie of himself standing there at the playground hey look folks here i am out here if if i was doing this in salt lake county which he's not by the way so you can put down the phone you don't have to turn him in but he says this would be considered a criminal act they would treat me as a criminal he's the only person there on the playground but because he was there you know that uh, that would be a defiance of the official dictates that have been handed down from on high and I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I, I'm just shocked at the, the boot-licking statism that some people are so eager to, to show. How dare you do this? This is an attack on all of us. I mean, he was accused of, of deliberately going out and trying to spread coronavirus. For the record, the guy is not infected with anything. He didn't come in contact with anybody. But the fact that he would even call into question you know, something that someone in authority had said, ooh, that is just, it's intolerable. And, and when I say intolerable, I mean to the point that people are hateful enough that they're like, I hope you catch the coronavirus so we can all rest easier. Does that sound like what a rational person would say? Does that sound like what anybody in command of their own mind or their own faculties would say to another human being? I hope you catch a disease and die. Why would they say something like that? 
Do, do they have a sense of justice? Do they have a sense of right and wrong? Or is that just, if I have to obey, you have to obey too. See, I think they're projecting their fears in, in a very, very unhealthy way. And so I was grateful to see that uh, my friend Eric Peters, who we'll be talking to tomorrow, reminded us of a name that, uh, that all of us should be familiar with. If, if you're ever tempted by your inner tyrant, this is a name that you should know. And the name is Pavlik Morozov. Now, Pavlik Morozov was a 13-year-old boy in the Soviet Union. He was hailed as a hero for turning his parents in to be shot by the government because his parents were resisting dekulakization or Stalin's plan to force Russian farmers off their privately owned plots and into collective farms, confiscating everything that they owned along the way. And as Eric Peters explains, little Pavlik denounced his parents for hoarding grain so they wouldn't starve rather than turning it over to the Soviet authorities who exported it to generate cash for the Soviet regime. Now, you probably remember how that story ends, right? Millions of Russian kulaks starved. Millions were force-marched into the camps that Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote about. Millions never returned from those camps. But Morozov... Pavlik Morozov was considered to be a good boy because why he did what any good Soviet citizen would do and he turned his parents in. Now he was justifiably torn to pieces by enraged townsfolk. But of course the Soviet regime turned him into a martyr and into an object of worship. By his, for his act of virtue signaling, they put statues up to him. People were expected to take their caps off when they passed by. And here's the distinction that you have to understand. Eric Peters says, the kid wasn't evil. He served evil because he was convinced he was doing good as good was defined in a a society gone psychotic. And doing that kind of good turned an entire country into an abattoir. How long will it be before we have statues erected to these kind of heroes here, Eric asks. He says Americans already worship them. Not the brave individuals who risk their lives by standing up to tyranny, but the people who enforce it. And he says there's nothing more virtuous in the land of the unfree and formerly brave than to submit and obey. And that's what I see. You know, the people who are wishing death and destruction and, and you know, I wish Connor would be put in jail for, for simply going outside, standing on a playground and going, hey, look, if I was doing this just a few miles to the north... I would be considered a criminal. When he's committing an act that is obviously not criminal in any way, shape, or form. Okay, so here's the concern that I have. How are we so easily separated from our freedoms? Is it really just a product of fear and and people are just so afraid? Well, we don't know what to do, and so I'm just waiting for someone to tell me what we should do. Because believe it or not, you you have a choice to make. I have a choice to make. You cannot be a good person and do horrible things. Even if someone is making you think, well, you're doing good things by turning in these businesses that have stayed open or, you know, turning in your neighbor if you see more than, you know, 10 people gathered in a particular place. Eric Peters reminds us what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, which has largely been forgotten. Solzhenitsyn said to do evil. A human being must first of all believe that what he is doing is good. 
ideology. That is what gives devil doing its long sought justification and gives the evildoer the necessary steadfastness and determination. That is the social theory which helps to make his acts seem good instead of bad in his own and others' eyes, so he won't hear reproaches, but instead will receive praises and honors, end quote. So it's a virtue to social distance. It's a heroic act to call armed government workers down upon those who choose not to. And I got to tell you, this is the worst kind of virtue signal. I'd take the social justice warriors with all the, the transgender you know, activism. I would take that in a heartbeat over this kind of virtue signaling. And to sit there and accuse people of, well, you're, just, you're trying to spread disease. You know, have you, have you not been to a supermarket? Have you been to a store any time within the last three weeks? And if the answer is yes, then can I kindly suggest shut your pie hole? More people, I guarantee, were gathered at whatever location you went to either procure your groceries or even to gas up your car. But that's not what bugs them. See, if it, if it was, you know, they'd, they'd really be, you know, sequestered in their homes and holed up. I don't know, maybe they'd even duct tape, you know, the windows shut. They're angry because someone is calling into question the pronouncement made by someone in authority. And apparently they, they resonate with that sense that well, someone in authority is telling us what to do. So therefore, we're only safe if we do what that person tells us. Look, I haven't had a lot of words of praise for Governor Gary Herbert because I felt like he was part of the political machinery. But I have to give the man credit in his handling of, uh, of this, at least from the state level of, of state government in Utah. They have put forth guidelines, and I think they're actually pretty solid guidelines. The kind of guidelines that I'd say, yeah, that makes sense. But there's a difference. There's a difference in following a guideline versus obeying a directive or a commandment that carries the penalty of law and the threat of armed force if you don't. And Governor Herbert, to his credit, has come down on the correct side of that line. But the little tyrants... And yes, we all have a little tyrant inside of us that we need to keep under control. The little tyrants think that uh, it's, it's imperative that everybody do as I say. They can't wait to, to rub up against authority. They get a contact high from it. That's going to do more harm to us in the long run than this coronavirus could ever be capable of. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please hold your calls until the second hour. That's when we'll open up the phone lines. I uh, wanted to share with you an article from Jeffrey A. Tucker. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. Something that you may have missed in all the dire news and all of the official pronouncements you may have missed that uh, the earlier warnings that were given by uh, by many people in, in positions of authority, some of them have been walking them back. And this is a very interesting article titled, We Were Wrong, So Sorry That We Ruined Your Life. 
Jeff Tucker says Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, is moving up in the betting odds for getting the Democratic presidential nomination, even though he's not running. And the reason is that binge watching news hounds have noticed something about his comportment during this crisis. He seems just slightly struggling to know what's true. And sometimes he's even honest. Consider this. On Thursday, March 26th, Cuomo dared question the orthodoxy that has wrecked countless businesses and lives. He revealed what actual experts are saying quietly all over the world, but had not yet been discussed openly in endless public relations spin broadcast all day and night. This is what Cuomo said. Quote, if you rethought that or had time to analyze that public health strategy, I don't know that you would say quarantine everyone. I don't even know that that was the best public health policy. Young people then quarantined with older people was probably not the best public health strategy because the younger people could have been exposing older people to an infection. Further, he said, what we did was we closed everything down. That was our public health strategy. Just close everything. All businesses, all old workers, young people, old people, short people, tall people, every school closed everything. End quote. Now, Jeff Tucker says it's true that anyone following the unfolding fiasco and the gradually emerging data behind it knows that Cuomo is right. The response has not been modern and scientific. It has been medieval and mystical. The theory behind the policy has been nothing but a panicked cry of run and hide before the noxious gas gets you. Lacking reliable data, which is the fault of the CDC and FDA, we replaced knowledge with power. In the end, he says this fiasco is an epist. <laughs> Let me try this again. Epist. Ep- I'm trying one more time. Epistemic crisis. There we go. As Ed Young has written in a beautifully detailed article for The Atlantic, the testing fiasco was the original sin of America's pandemic failure, the single flaw that undermined every other countermeasure. And Jeff Tucker explains even the wide acceptance of social distancing as a norm. However much it helps curb the spread, presumes this absence of knowledge. Stay away from everyone as much as possible, a slogan that reveals how little we know. And he says, yet lacking that knowledge, the politicians cheered on by the media acted in ways that have fundamentally wrecked knife life rather as we knew it, all in the course of a couple of weeks. The massive knowledge gap was filled by a cascade of predictive models made possible by modern statistical packages readily available by subscription to any member of this uh, of the clerisy. If this and this and this and if this and this and this, then enter out pops what appears to be a precise presentation of our future under the following conditions, along with an overlay of embedded cause and effect assumptions about certain policies followed or not followed. Well, day after day, we were bombarded with such predictions, and we paid close attention because we had little in the way of actual, on-the-ground facts that had been available to us in previous disease panics. It then became the perfect storm, says Jeffrey Tucker, risk-averse politicians deciding to do something, anything, to avoid blame, bureaucrats doing what they do best, which is telling people, no, you cannot innovate, you cannot produce, you cannot distribute. Local tyrants stopping price gouging and therefore preventing the price system from working. A howling media famished for eyeballs, ears, and clicks. A public panicked about disease and death. An egregious dividing of people into essential and non-essential. Policy snares, tangles, missed opportunities all around. The cacophony of information chaos has been palpable, unbearable. And all the while... 
a few knowledgeable experts have been trying their best to weigh in and get some slight attention for rationality. Jeff Tucker says his heart in particular goes out to the esteemed professor John Ionidis, who has been exposing fake science based on bad data his entire life and has previously been celebrated for doing so. He writes as often as he can while still trying to be as precise and accurate as he can. Well, apparently such high-end people have a private email list in which they share observations and data while doing their best to bring calm while civilization is following, falling apart. His first salvo appeared March 17th. God bless the National Post for publishing Ionidas' latest exasperated piece. Quote, At the moment, we are acting extre- enacting extremely severe measures in an effort to do something. However, we have very little evidence-based data on how to guide our next steps. We really don't know where we are, where we are heading, whether our measures are effective, or if we need to modify them. There is a possibility that many of our aggressive measures could be doing more harm than good, especially if they are to be maintained in the long term. There will be major consequences in terms of lives lost, major disruptions to the economy, to the society, and to our civilization. He then says at this juncture, we need to act swiftly. At the same time, we need to act equally swiftly to collect unbiased data that will tell us how many people are infected the chances that someone who is infected will have a serious outcome and die, how the epidemic is evolving in different settings and places around the world, and what difference we are making with the measures that we're taking. This information can make a huge difference, and there is a lot that can go wrong if we don't have the right data. He says this has been an acute situation. At the same time, collecting reliable data should not take time and should not halt our decision-making process. Getting information on representative samples of the population is very easy. It has been done in Iceland, where they have a cohort covering most of the national population looking at samples that have been provided. They see that they have an infection rate of 1.0%, and up until now, only two people have died. So out of the 3,500 infected people in Iceland, there have been two deaths, which corresponds to an infection fatality rate lower than the common flu. Of course, some people may be infected later, but nevertheless, these estimates would be very different compared with the original claims of case fatality rates of 3.4% that were circulated. He says at the same time, we have other pieces of evidence that the number of people who are infected is much larger compared with the number of cases we have documented. In most places, with few exceptions around the world, we are just testing people who have substantial symptoms, who've come to seek health care or even to be hospitalized. These are the tip of the iceberg. The Iceland experience and other data from Rome and Italy, where entire city populations were tested, shows that the vast majority of people are either completely asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic in ways that you would not be able to differentiate from the common cold or common flu. This information makes a huge difference while we're proceeding with aggressive measures of social distancing and lockdowns that may have tremendous repercussions, especially in the long term. End quote. And Jeff Tucker says, as the song says, stop making sense. Now, he wrote this article on Saturday morning, March 28th. He says, right now, there are two contrary strains about to collide. On the one hand, you have scientists reducing their death rate predictions further and further, lopping off zeros by the day. On the other hand, this is accompanied by appalling levels of despotism, even to the point of National Guard checkpoints at state borders, and restrictions on what you can buy, even at essential stores. 
the gigantic gap between emerging professional medical consensus and appalling policy ignorance is revealing as never before the practical impossibility of scientific public policy. And then he says, you have the cascade of unintentional and unexpected outcomes of the rush to coerce. It begins with Trump's disastrous block on flights from Europe that sent millions scrambling for tickets and led to an unspeakable crush of people standing shoulder to shoulder at our nation's airports, contradicting the demand that people social distance just when the virus was revealing itself as highly contagious. The very opposite of intended results. Now, we've got to pause here because we're coming up on our break. I'll continue with this article from Jeffrey Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research. Of course, I will have a link posted to this in the show notes, which you can check out for yourself at LovingLiberty.net. Just check out the podcast archive and you'll find all of them lovingly preserved for you. We'll be back right after these messages. And just like that, we are back from our break. Welcome to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, sharing with you an article from Jeffrey Tucker. We, are, we were wrong. So sorry that we ruined your life. I'm glad to see that someone is finally getting some of this information out there. I've seen the stories for the last few days that there are a number of experts that have started to slowly walk back some of their more dire predictions about how many deaths they were expecting and so forth. But it is refreshing to see that there are some recognizing, hey, uh, maybe the rush to do something, anything, wasn't as uh, well thought out as they thought. And I love the example he gave in the last segment where he talked about, you know, the block on flights from Europe that sent millions of people scrambling for tickets and led to an incredible congestion of people standing shoulder to shoulder at the airports, the very opposite of what they intended. But he says that's just the beginning. He says, I seriously doubt that the political class in this country as lower regard as I've said it, set out to destroy all that we call civilized life, instantly generating millions of unemployed workers and bankrupt businesses all around, not to mention a pandemic of utter hopelessness on the part of vast swaths of the world's population. Still, this is what they've managed to achieve. This is what their pretense of knowledge as opposed to actual wisdom has unleashed on the world with incalculable human cost. As for economics, are we talking recession, depression, those words indicate cyclic changes in business conditions. And he says, my friend Gene Epstein suggests another term for what we're going through, the great suppression. There will be months, years, and decades in which to more clearly observe the countless ways in which the suppressors piled error upon error, blockage upon blockage, to add to the grotesquerie. What truly should inspire all of us right now are the grocers, pharmacists, truck drivers, manufacturers, doctors and nurses, construction workers, restaurant workers, service station attendants, webmasters, volunteers of all sorts, philanthropists and specialists in a huge variety of essential professions who keep life functioning more or less. And he says, let us not forget the unessential people. It's an incorrect and vicious term who've innovated ways around the Great Suppression to continue to serve others, keep the rent being paid and food on their tables. They are the means of salvation out of this mess. The market, hobbled and bludgeoned, still loves you. Now, Jeff Tucker says, as for the uh, politicians, 
Andrew Cuomo has admitted some of the error. In a much-welcome change, he even deregulated medical services. Now, there's just a hint of humility and humanity embedded in these statements and actions. And Jeff Tucker says we need more of that, vastly more, if only to contribute to calming things down long enough to gain some perspective. And hopefully some eventual realization that in the land of the free and the home of the brave, a virus should be regarded as a disease to mitigate and cure, not an excuse to bludgeon life on earth as we know it. Amen, bro. Fantastic article. Again, I'll have a link to to this article in the show notes. I encourage you, share it with your friends. Pass it around. It's something more people really should be considering. Now, another question remains, and that is, how can so many Americans be so easily stampeded into an ever smaller corral of what remains of our freedoms? Auguste Myrat has a terrific essay that explains our disconnect from reality. The title is actually, The Wuhan Virus Has Exposed Modern Americans' Disconnect from Reality. And the subtitle, Americans Could Use a Little Less Netflix and Chill, Not More. He says, by now the Wuhan virus has hit home for everyone, stores ransacked, schools closed, all large large gatherings and events canceled, long-distance travel prohibited, pork-filled stimulus bills written and debated, some major cities enforcing mandatory, mandatory quarantines, people everywhere now remain anxious in their homes and plan to stay there for at least another month, rationing precious toilet paper and keeping updated on the situation. Now, he says, while the experts claim that little is known about the Wuhan virus, enough is known to suggest that the response has been excessive. And while there is a worrying possibility that the Wuhan virus will make a sizable impact on public health, along with the possibility that it probably won't, the hype surrounding it has already created a huge imposition on daily life and cost the global economy trillions of dollars. Everyone must do their part to confront the pandemic or face the wrath of their contentious peers. Now, this kind of hype and the subsequent reactions to it seems to grow worse with each year. Right before the Wuhan virus, there was President Trump's historic impeachment. And before that, there was the death of General Qasem Soleimani and the possibility of World War III. And before that, in no particular order... There was the imminent climate catastrophe, Russian collusion, and the Mueller report, the Amazon rainforest burning down, and periodic nuclear threats from North Korea. His point is people should know better by now. They seem to fall for the hype every time, including many conservatives. The promise of the tech age and the ubiquity of smartphones and the Internet was that it would arm people with relevant information and rational courses of action. Rather, it has done the opposite, magnifying doubts and fears about everything And every one in most cases, the only thing that information technology has done is cause people to become less tethered to reality. Screens now replace people's senses. The algorithms embedded in social media do people's thinking for them. As such, most people spend more time in the virtual world and less time in the real one, making them ever more vulnerable to exaggerated doomsday narratives. In particular, this retreat from reality takes a toll on a person's memory, imagination, And common sense. Now, he gives some examples here, and I'm going to warn you, this is going to sting. Or at least it it did for me. He says, remember swine flu or bird flu or Ebola or Zika or SARS? Each of these diseases from the past two decades was arguably worse than the Wuhan virus. 
In the case of swine flu, more than a thousand people died from it before Obama declared a state of emergency. Big tech and the mainstream news will never report this. And yet for all of their distrust of the media, people still seem inclined to believe the pundits and clueless scientists over their own experience. This then leads to a lack of context. Everything seems new and unprecedented and therefore unknown and scary, except that this isn't true. Pandemics have always existed, and there are proven ways to deal with them that don't involve shutting down the economy and putting everyone under house arrest. But he says context is crucial. The lack of context leads to a breakdown in imagination, specifically the ability to mentally process the details of a situation. In the case of pandemics and money, people struggle mightily with scale. When learning about the tiny fraction of people who've died from the Wuhan virus, people envision a barren landscape with corpses lining the streets and soldiers in hazmat suits rounding up hordes of infected people still left. By contrast, when hearing about the trillions of dollars lost or spent in response to the Wuhan virus, people imagine this is a small expense, the government equivalent of not dining out on the weekend. Well, he says that this writing... The number of deaths from the Wuhan virus is around 30,000 worldwide and just over 2,000 in the United States. Now, this seems like a large number until one accounts for the 8 billion people who inhabit the globe and the 100,000, sorry, 153,424 people who die every day. Moreover, the average age of those who die from Wuhan virus is 77 and mainly poses life-threatening risks to those over 60, earning it the nickname the Boomer Remover, or those who suffer from other health problems, which made up 99% of the victims in Italy. So it's understandable for those who are elderly to fear this disease, as they should fear all diseases. But it makes little sense for everyone else to immediately self-quarantine for a month or more, only to still catch the virus right after the quarantine ends. With people fearing the worst and struggling with math, he says it's only normal that logic will also fall away. Nothing makes sense. Crowds can lead to the spread of disease, so people congregate at stores to panic buy. Only specific locations, mainly those with large elderly populations like retirement homes and churches, have experienced fatal outbreaks of the Wuhan virus. Yet every place is closed, including schools, amusement parks, restaurants, and bars. Only certain people are at risk of having the Wuhan virus, so everyone and their pet should be tested for it. The abandoned shops and ongoing panic may encourage looting, so cities should release their prisoners and stop arresting vandals. And by the way, he has links to every single one of these claims to back up that this is not just his imagination. And of course, the Wuhan virus it originated in the Wuhan province of China, so it's racist to refer to this fact. Now, for those who are insisting ad nauseum that they are taking the virus very seriously, this is not serious. This is a panic. This is a South Park episode. People are losing their minds because of the media, and the media is losing its collective mind because of the people taking them seriously. Well, half seriously. And politicians and organization leaders are under huge pressure to do something the more expensive, the better. Further, he says those who claim that enduring inconveniences for the sake of saving lives is worth it, and the current lockdown is not the, the current lockdown rather is not a mere inconvenience. It's a prou profound disruption that's already uprooted many people's lives. Small businesses are closing. People are losing jobs or seeing their hours cut. Schools everywhere are canceled for the next month. Universities have let out two months early. A nationwide shutdown to wait out the virus is simply not worth all of this. 
We'll come back to finish up this commentary just the other side of these messages. This is Loving Liberty. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Again, hold your calls until the next hour. We'll open up the phones at that time. I'm sharing with you an article by Auguste Mayrat, and it explains our disconnect from reality. Maybe you've suspected this. I don't know. Maybe maybe some people are dug in where they don't really even want to consider this. But the idea that uh, it's an either-or proposition, you know, and and I've heard so many people say this, unfortunately, that, look, you either favor saving lives or you just want money. And that's not true. It's a it's a complete false dilemma. But here we are with countless employees who have to work from home while watching their children, hospitals overrun, families rationing necessities. Churches can't even hold services for Easter. And in this case, uh, Mr. Mayrat says the nationwide shutdown to wait out the virus is simply not worth all of this. These are hasty solutions imposed without the thought of what are some of the other consequences and it's not really stopping the virus either i mean if they were serious about that i i don't mean to to suggest anything that uh, we know would be distasteful but uh, maybe we would shut down all of the grocery stores and every one of us would rely on whatever we need to survive in terms of food and supplies to be delivered by soldiers in hazmat suits Well, we don't want to go that far. No, but you'll go right up to the edge of it. As Mr. Mayrat says, we can hope people will come to their senses, come out of their houses and begin to talk over the preppers, perpetuating worst case scenarios on social media. People already spend enough time hovering over their screens, mistaking media gaslighting for reality. He says they don't need to compound this problem with a needless self-quarantine. America's could use a little less Netflix and chill, not more. Which brings us to the uh, global economic crisis that has been caused here. There's a great article on the uh, Mises Wire from Mises.org. This is from Daniel LaCalle. Governments can't fix this economic crisis they caused. But like everything else, you know that uh, you know politicians and bureaucrats can't wait to step up and fix things for you, just like they've done so far. Daniel LaCalle says, before analyzing the emergency plans that the global economy needs, he says, we must remember that in the past, the prudence and responsibility of the civil society and businesses will help to get us out of this crisis. In the face of an unprecedented crisis, he says, we have to be realistic, responsible and cautious. Now, he says, this is a supply shock added to a mandatory shutdown of the economy. As such, a serious response must be supply-side driven. And he says it's ludicrous to try to stimulate demand with printed money and public spending in a forced lockdown where any extra demand will not drive supply up or even may drive it down. A mandatory shutdown due to a supply shock is not solved with government spending or demand-side measures. Printing money and lowering rates to help the already indebted and governments with already historic low bond yields Deficits are already going to soar due to automatic stabilizers. Governments that overspent in growth times massively increased debt 
and ignored the pandemic risks only to then create a widespread lockdown cannot present themselves as the solution. Small and medium enterprises do not need a government to incentivize demand because this is not a demand problem. The shutdown is imposed by law due to a health epidemic that lawmakers preferred to ignore. We can't fall into the trap of believing that what the economy needs is more monetary easing when it fails. And if it doesn't work, why we must try even more monetary insanity. He says it very clearly. Monetary insanity is not the solution to monetary excess and lunacy. And it is our duty to warn of the risks of falling into irresponsible optimism precisely so that we can get out of this crisis sooner and better. Now, this brings us to the question, so what recovery will there be? Well, estimates of economic growth are plummeting at breakneck speed. The closure, albeit temporary, of economic activity, transport, and trade will mean an inevitable recession. The biggest mistake policymakers can make is to believe in a V-shaped recovery. All governments should prepare for an L-shaped recovery. He says, if I'm wrong, economies will be stronger anyway. But he says, if I'm right, massive stimulus implemented only three weeks after a market all-time high and immense deficit spending policies at the beginning of a pandemic crisis will cripple the economy to an irreparable situation. Leading economies have a great capacity to face a shock like this. Now, this is not the case in Italy or Spain. Calculations for the U.S. indicate that unemployment will skyrocket to 6.5%, in the case of the U.K. to 7%, and in Germany to 6%. In weak and highly intervened economies, the combination of already high unemployment, high debt, and high government spending can lead to a Greece-style crisis when the measures to address a forced shutdown come from more government intervention. Now, he says in the Eurozone, most of the plans announced by governments were based on three important flaws. Ignore that many countries were already close to a recession in 2019. Assume a low-impact parenthesis and estimate a rapid and exponential recovery that will inflict no real damage on employment or public or private accounts. Well, in the Eurozone, Germany, France, Italy, and Spain's fourth-quarter GDP already reflected a significant slowdown. So the European Commission, ECB, and government's responses start from the wrong diagnosis, that the problem we're facing is one of demand and access to credit, and not of sales collapse due to an imposed lockdown, with an accumulation of tax liabilities and fixed costs. He says the United States must avoid making the mistakes that the Eurozone nations are already starting to make. And then there are deadlines. European governments are unwittingly creating a worse long-term impact on the economy by giving citizens unrealistic small doses of negative information and extending lockdowns in 15-day periods. This is leading to massive cash flow problems all over the economy because businesses find that support mechanisms only last for a few days, while the extension of losses destroys cash flow and balance sheets. He says businesses are seeing current invoices delayed or unpaid while orders for November and December are being canceled. The vast majority of companies don't face a problem of access to credit. There's ample liquidity and credit supply on solvent demand and at very low rates. They're facing complete closure and layoffs due to cessation of activity. Zero income, but fixed costs and accumulated taxes. Many businesses will find that delaying tax payments or provide loans, providing loans rather won't solve anything. Most businesses' problem is not one of loan guarantees, but of the probability of requesting a loan. 
were not in crisis due to a lack of access to credit, but rather a crisis due to the disappearance of activity. Now, he goes on to talk about the private contribution. Governments expect banks to provide massive relief through more loans, ignoring the fact that banks in the Eurozone still have billions of non-performing loans and face a massive increase in delinquencies in Europe, but also in their growth subsidiaries, mainly in Latin America and Asia. Banks are going to face an increase in default on existing assets, both in Europe and abroad. Banks can cope with this situation, and they've done it well, but they're not going to be able to increase risk by tens of billions while helping their current clients come out of the crisis. Most European governments assume a balance sheet strength in private agents that's neither evident in large companies nor is it existent in small and medium companies. Additionally, Europe's large companies already have high levels of indebtedness, although it has decreased admirably in recent years. Net debt to EBITDA, E-B-D-I-T-E-B-I-D-I-T-D-A, sorry, it's a lot of syllables there, in non-financial companies is already likely to soar due to the downgrades in earnings and cash flow. Credit, liquidity, and short-term aid measures are suitable for those who would have survived anyway before these new central bank and government measures. Liquidity was immense, rates were low, and the banks did everything possible to lend. So the losers from this crisis will likely be those who've done their homework and who live month by month without large assets to cover a loan and without muscle to face months of zero income. And those, the ones who were going to suffer the most in these months, were already drowned in taxes last year. Governments are already going to consume all the fiscal space they have and more. The idea is that this enormous liquidity at negative real rates may be used for something effective for once, not to increase structural imbalances in current spending. Now, this is not asking the state to intervene. It's asking the government to stop intervening so much, stop the tax burden machine during an unprecedented business cataclysm, and unite in responsibility and austerity with those who are fighting every day to survive. If governments and central banks, banks rather decide to multiply the previous mistakes, adding larger ones, like direct monetization of spending or helicopter money, they'll just add a monetary crisis to a mandatory supply shock. A mistake is not corrected by doing the same, but more aggressively. He says a widespread economic closure shock is not solved with demand measures or using the private sector balance sheet to add debt and accumulate risk, but with, a, with urgent supply measures that respond to the reality of businesses and with them of workers and families. Now, he does say the U.S. and the world will rise from this crisis. What the government has to do is allow it. The government is there to facilitate not to pick winners and losers. This is Loving Liberty. Stick around. Hour two is on the way next. <laughs> 